Hey there, this is Devin from Legal Eagle. You're smart. And I know that you're smart because you're listening to this podcast. But if you want even more incredible, educational-ish content from me and my friends, then you've got to get Nebula. Because in addition to offering tons of terrific podcasts ad-free, Nebula is a place where my friends and I get to release tons of experimental and exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. Plus, all of my videos are ad-free. Just head to watchnebula.com slash radio to sign up now. So the Senate failed to procure enough votes to convict former President Trump of the charge of incitement to insurrection. And thus, in a way, the Senate has acquitted President Trump of his record second impeachment. For many, this was a fait accompli, that there was simply no way it was possible for the Democrats or anyone else to convince enough Republicans to form the necessary two-thirds majority in order to convict on impeachment. But even still, this was a marked difference from the first impeachment trial and a record number of members of the same party as the former president voted to convict. But let's take a look at the five days that comprise the impeachment trial, examine the legal arguments and see if this was indeed inevitable and whether the arguments on the prosecution side and the defense side held any water. Hey, Legal Eagles, it's time to think like an impeachment lawyer because former President Trump was able to escape conviction on impeachment for a record second time, but this time only narrowly. Now, as we've talked about many times on this channel, an impeachment trial is not a criminal trial. You know this. You know that it is a political trial, or more specifically, it is a trial by parliament. And uh, lawyers like myself like to make analogies to the criminal justice system, but these analogies are always imperfect. And this moves in several different directions. So we're going to be talking about things like due process and the hearsay rule. But often these things are completely inchoate in an impeachment setting because the Senate makes its own rules. It can adopt adopt the federal rules of evidence, but it doesn't have to. And due process considerations that exist for private citizens in the criminal justice system simply do not exist in an impeachment setting. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to throw any of that out. It just means that it might not necessarily carry the day. And we saw this throughout the impeachment trial with lawyers making contradictory arguments, uh, with senators justifying their reasons for voting or not voting for uh, conviction of impeachment in ways that absolutely do not jive with the criminal justice system. And we also saw it in things like uh, a group of senators meeting with the defense lawyers. We saw Senators Cruz, Graham, and Lee actually meet with uh, President Trump's surrogates to discuss the defense of the president. And people were absolutely right to point out that in a criminal justice setting, members of the jury meeting and strategizing with attorneys for either side would be completely improper. This is not a criminal justice sitting. Literally, the impeachment clause of the Constitution does not allow for criminal penalties. It's on the narrow issue of preventing someone from holding office again. So look, politicians are going to be politicians. But that being said, let's dive into the legal arguments that were made. So let's start with the very first foundational jurisdictional question of whether the Senate can even hold an impeachment hearing related to an official who is no longer in that position. The first day of the impeachment trial was devoted to this very question because generally you have to determine issues of law before you can get to the issues of fact. Some argue that the Constitution doesn't answer this question directly. So let's start with the historical context that the framers were dealing with. Because as Hamilton wrote, England provided the model from which the idea of this institution has been borrowed. In fact, every impeachment that occurred during the framers' lifetime actually concerned a former official. And the consensus of the first states to draft their own constitutions was that impeachment of former officials was not banned. Every single state constitution in the 1780s either specifically said that former officials could be impeached or were entirely consistent with the idea. In contrast, 
not a single state constitution prohibited trials of former officials. And Virginia, Delaware, Vermont, and Pennsylvania explicitly permitted late impeachment in their state constitutions, which were written before the US Constitution. And generally speaking, in the pre-constitutional era, officers were impeached after they left office. In Vermont, for example, state representative Jonathan Fassett was impeached after he joined an angry mob that wanted to stop a county court from convening. Huh. Wonder if that sounds familiar. He was impeached and later convicted after he left office. And the constitution was being hashed out during the same month that British governor general of India, William Hastings, was being impeached for corruption. Hastings was already out of office at the time. The people who drafted the constitution repeatedly referred to the Hastings impeachment in an offhand manner. The same way that people in our era may refer to the Clinton impeachment without getting into the gritty details. And apparently the founders did not object to the lateness of this impeachment. Instead, they used it to show why impeachment was important. George Mason noted that Hastings committed a slew of crimes, but none of them fit the definition of treason. Mason warned that the definition of treason in the U.S. Constitution would not include attempts to, quote, subvert the Constitution. Therefore, impeachment should include high crimes and misdemeanors. And George Mason certainly imagines someone like Donald Trump. In other words, Mason thought that making a character judgment was an important part of the scheme of checks and balances between the branches of government. So, Lin-Manuel, where is George Mason's musical? So not surprisingly, almost the entire first day of the impeachment trial was devoted to this legal question. Can the Senate hold an impeachment trial related to an official who has either resigned or whose term has expired? And generally that's a good idea because if this was a criminal trial, you would almost always dispose of all the legal questions before getting to the issues of fact. And that's especially important here because this is a political question where the Supreme Court would never touch it with a 10 foot pole. In other words, even if former President Trump was convicted, there's no way that he could try to appeal this to the federal courts and say that this was improper or unconstitutional. The Supreme Court would 100% never answer it because this is a political question that is left up to the judicial branch. And so given that on the first day, the Senate held a vote and held that by a majority that the Senate believed it had jurisdiction to hold this impeachment trial, one would think that this legal question was settled. But of course, this is partially a political question and thus the senators can do whatever they want for basically whatever reasons they want. But there is, I think, one important analogy to the criminal justice system that applies in a situation like this. Because the way that a criminal trial would work is that the lawyers and the judge would hash out all of the legal issues. And eventually, once those things are hashed out, the judge will give the jury instructions to the jury that gives them all of the law that they need to understand the decision that they're going to make. And there's a phrase that we use to describe what happens when a jury disregards those kind of instructions and makes a decision based on whatever rationale they want. And that phrase is jury nullification. And it's completely reasonable to say that several members of the Senate engaged in jury nullification to find former President Trump not guilty. And then there's also the doctrine of unclean hands, because it's not like the date of this trial was set in stone from on high. Let's not forget that former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was in control of the Senate schedule and prevented the Senate from holding a trial on former President Trump while he was still in office. 
And that's particularly galling when Mitch McConnell used that timing as the reason that he didn't vote to convict, saying that impeachment is primarily a tool for removal, though he leaves open the, the argument that impeachment can be used outside of that context, which the majority of legal scholars believe as well. And some have argued, again, analogizing to the criminal justice system, that if you in fact believe that the Senate doesn't have jurisdiction, then you can't participate in that vote. But there is one senator who I think threaded this needle and actually came to a principled stance while fundamentally disagreeing with some of these jurisdictional questions. And that's Senator Richard Burr from North Carolina, who recognized that he couldn't hide behind the unconstitutionality argument and voted to convict. He stated, quote, when this process started, I believe that it was unconstitutional to impeach a president who was no longer in office. I still believe that to be the case. However, the Senate is an institution based on precedent. And given that the majority of the Senate voted to proceed with this trial, the question of constitutionality is now established precedent. As an impartial juror, my role is now to determine whether House managers have sufficiently made the case for the article of impeachment against President Trump. I've listened to the arguments presented by both sides and considered the facts. The facts are clear. And then voted for conviction. Those are the words of someone who had a reasonable argument related to the process of the impeachment trial, but then did his duty based on his position as the impeachment went forward. So with that historical context, let's look at the actual text of the Constitution. Article 2, Section 4 says, quote, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Trump argues that the plain meaning of the word officer means a person who currently holds office, not an ex-officer. The phrase removed from office in this context would mean that once a person was already gone, he or she cannot be removed. And Trump lawyer David Schoen addressed his argument in his trial brief, but didn't discuss it in any detail during his opening statement. The Democrats argue that the question of whether a former official can be tried as part of the impeachment process depends not just on the language of Article 2, Section 4, but also depends on other sections of the Constitution that deal with impeachment. They begin with the question, how does the Constitution describe the accused in an impeachment trial? We already know that Article 2, Section 4 simply says the president, vice president, and all civil officers can be removed. Trump's lawyers rely exclusively on this provision to make their argument that only current officers can be impeached. And the House managers rely on Chuck Cooper, a staunchly conservative lawyer who has represented Republicans, including minority leader Mark Meadows. As Cooper says, Article 2, Section 4 means just what it says. I mean, the first half describes what an official must do to be impeached namely commit high crimes and misdemeanors. And the second half describes what happens when civil officers of the United States, including the sitting president, are convicted. Removal from office. That's it. In Cooper's words, that establishes what is known in the criminal law as a mandatory minimum punishment. And then we move on to the next section. To define the identity of the accused in an impeachment trial, the House managers also rely on Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 and 7, which refer to a person and a party rather than a president, vice president, or civil officer. Clause 6, quote, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. And we move on to clause number seven, quote, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than removal from office and disqualification to hold enjoyment of any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, and punishment according to law. So here we have the words person and party rather than a civil officer in describing the accused. 
Arguably, this word choice includes former officials. Who could be on put on trial, rather, for impeachment other than civil officers? Who else could a person or a party be? Well, really, there's only one possible answer, former officers. And then circling back to some prior language that we read, the House managers also direct our attention back to the language of Article 1, Section 3, which states, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification. Representative Joe Negus gave a masterclass in the construction of these words. The Constitution does not say removal from office and then disqualification. It doesn't say removal from office followed by disqualification. Now, on the other hand, the Trump argument is that the and binds both the removal and disqualification together. And thus, uh, you can't have a removal of someone who's already been removed from office, meaning that therefore you can't have the disqualification against someone who's already been removed from office. The vast majority of legal scholars uh, do not adhere to this particular interpretation and are following what Representative Nagus was already arguing. But then we go back to Article 1, Section 3, which states that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. The House managers argue that all means all. It doesn't say the Senate has the power to try impeachments against sitting officers. What we're left with is an impeachment mechanism that includes four possible punishments. Impeachment by the House, removal from office by the Senate, disqualification from holding office again, and a criminal prosecution in a court of law. And of course, many have argued the policy argument that if disqualification was subject to a time limit, that creates a dangerous loophole, a potential January exception. Officials could commit the most extraordinary, destructive offenses against the American people, high crimes and misdemeanors. They'd have total control over whether they can ever be impeached, and if they are, whether the Senate can try the case. If they want to escape any public inquiry into their misconduct or the risk of disqualification from future office, then it's pretty simple. They just could just resign one minute before the House impeaches or even one minute before the Senate trial, or they could resign during the Senate trial if it's not looking so well. That would effectively erase disqualification from the Constitution. So assuming that this impeachment trial is legitimate, which the overwhelming weight of legal authority seems to suggest, that takes us to the arguments for the conviction on impeachment and the arguments against. On days two and three of the impeachment trial, House managers made their case arguing for conviction. House managers spent most of day two presenting new footage of the riots themselves, and honestly, it's shocking. And let's take a moment to recognize a true American hero, Eugene Goodman, who appears to have single-handedly saved the life of Mitt Romney and countless other representatives and senators. A man whose quick thinking saved lives and whose decision not to use his gun also spared the lives of countless rioters. And we forget that this easily could have been a massacre in two different directions, not only the politicians, but also the rioters and protesters themselves. And while many would have cheered that on, that too would have been an American tragedy. And it's only through the quick thinking of people like Eugene Goodman, that that tragedy was averted. So let's start with the arguments of the House managers. In their trial brief, they argue that this trial arises from President Donald J. Trump's incitement of insurrection against the republic he swore to protect. The House impeachment managers walk through the lead up to January 6th, discussing how the Trump campaign refused to concede that... Trump lost the election. Even after Trump lost over 60 legal cases related to the election, he refused to accept the loss and instead saying he won in a landslide and the vote was stolen from him. Uh, former President Trump also pressured state election officials, state representatives, governors, and U.S. attorneys to overturn the will of the people in their states. 
After the Electoral College voted to certify President Biden's win, former President Trump asked his supporters to come to Washington on January 6th to, quote, stop the steal. January 6th was the day that Congress would meet to certify the election, and Trump told his supporters that the results could be changed on that day. Trump spent approximately $50 million on a campaign to stop the steal. These ads were designed to run all the way up to January 5, and then they stopped leading many to suspect that the Trump campaign didn't actually think that there was any value in ar making the arguments after the 6th and putting everything into that date. The Trump campaign helped plan the event on January 6th. Trump selected the date because this was the day that Biden's win would be finalized. The Constitution says you have to protect our country and you have to protect our Constitution and you can't vote on fraud. And fraud breaks up everything, doesn't it? When you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. So I hope Mike has the courage to do what he has to do. We fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Trump told them that Mike Pence could overturn the election results. Right after Trump was informed that Vice President Pence had been evacuated due to all of the supporters invading the Capitol, minutes later, he tweeted that to the mob that Pence was a coward. Quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our constitution. USA demands the truth. The mob yelled Trump's tweet into a bullhorn uh, while they went into the Capitol building. The mob searched for Pence, the mob searched for the votes, and the mob searched for other elected representatives who were going through with the uh, election certification. And as demonstrated by his calls to Senators Tuberville and Lee, Trump was willing to use the violence to his effective advantage as leverage to try and get them to do something to stop the certification. So this is the factual basis for the article's impeachment from the House. Now let's talk about the legal basis. The House argues that these actions were high crimes and misdemeanors. I've done many other videos on the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors, but suffice to say, almost all legal scholars agree that the term was meant to include transgressions that were not necessarily actual crimes prohibited by federal law, since there wasn't very much federal law at the time, and that it was a catch-all for things that are a violation of public trust. Certainly actual crimes could be high crimes and misdemeanors as well, but it's not necessary that a president be removed because of an actual statutory crime. And as we've discussed, the founders believe that the actions against the state which subvert the government were impeachable. As Alexander Hamilton described them as actions which are, quote, political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. Historically, politicians have taken the position that these offenses could be even moral, such as having an affair and then lying under oath to cover it up. The House Democrats write that, quote, if provoking an insurrection riot against a joint session of Congress after losing an election is not an impeachable offense, it's hard to imagine what would be. The House argues that Trump attacked the foundations of the democratic process itself, quote, under absolute no circumstance may a candidate for any position at any level of government respond to electoral defeat by provoking armed violence. And the House managers, anticipating the arguments of Trump's defense that he had a First Amendment right to say whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, the House managers have two counter arguments that the First Amendment is not a defense to the actions and statements
statements that were made on January 6th and the lead up to January 6th. First, they say that President Trump should be held to a higher standard of conduct than a private citizen. Quote, no one would seriously suggest that a president should be immunized from impeachment if he publicly championed the adoption of a totalitarian government, swore an oath of eternal loyalty to a foreign power, or advocated that states secede from and overthrow the union, even though private citizens could be protected by the First Amendment for such speech. The House impeachment managers argued that interfering with the peaceful transfer of power with violence is an assault on core First Amendment principles. And the House's second argument is that there's already quite a bit of First Amendment jurisprudence on the limits of some speech, that speech is not protected where it is, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. I've already covered whether former President Trump's speech incited the riot in another video from a criminal law perspective, and there are certainly arguments on either side. But the impeachment is not about whether former President Trump violated a criminal statute and is going to jail. The impeachment trial literally cannot result in a jail conviction. It says specifically in the Constitution that that, that is not allowed. It's about whether his conduct as a whole was so serious that America should send a message to future presidents and to insurrectionists, and whether it should punish the speech that was actually made by preventing such a transgressor from being able to hold office again. And that takes us to the third argument of the Democratic House managers, which is, again, anticipating uh, arguments from the Trump camp. They argue that late impeachments are absolutely constitutional. The House cites the same authorities that we talked about earlier in this video, talking about how late impeachments are both constitutional and have a fairly long history. And they also rely on old writings of Professor Jonathan Turley, one of Trump's chief defenders. Turley wrote several journal articles that impeaching ex-presidents is constitutional. Professor Turley argued that the House could have impeached and the Senate could have tried Richard Nixon after he resigned. Quote, future presidents could not assume that mere resignation would avoid a trial of their conduct in the United States Senate. No man in no circumstance can escape the account which he owes to the laws of his country. Of course, it's also important to point out that President Trump was not impeached after he left office. He was impeached when he was in office, and now it's up to the Senate to try it. And in fact, as many have pointed out, Mitch McConnell could have allowed the Senate to conduct the trial before former President Trump left office. But this is not a case of the impeachment happening after the resignation or after the official has left office. The impeachment, the indictment phase, already happened while Trump was president. Of course, Turley had has been featured heavily on Fox News, arguing the exact opposite of his earlier views, without saying why and how his hundreds of pages of arguments are now false. But Jonathan Turley is going to Jonathan Turley. Uh, what they're citing is an article from 21 years ago. And the House manager's arguments also sound in classic penological theory, one point arguing, it's making sure that no future official, no future president does the same exact thing President Trump does. What they're arguing is, in fact, deterrence, both individual and general. They want to make sure that former President Trump himself never has an opportunity to do the things that he did, as well as making sure that no one like former President Trump does it in the future as well, as well as the common justification of punitive measures, punishing former President Trump for the actions that he did undertake. Those are the classic reasons as to why you would incarcerate someone in jail in the first place. 
So that takes us to former President Trump's arguments. The House impeachment managers cite Trump's actions and words and conduct from before, during, and after the riot. Trump, on the other hand, has chosen to focus on narrow issues of whether his January 6th speech would have uh, made him liable for the actual crime of incitement of uh, imminent lawless action. Trump camp argues that President Trump did not commit the crime of incitement and focus on the text of the January 6th speech. Trump argued in his brief, quote, words do matter and the words of President Trump's January 6th speech speak for themselves. Of the over 10,000 words spoken, Mr. Trump used the word fight a little more than a handful of times and each time in the figurative sense that has long been accepted in public discourse when urging people to stand and use their voices to be heard on matters important. As the Trump camp points out, the former president spoke for about an hour, but never advocated for violence or told anyone to get their weapons. Although he told them to head over to the Capitol, he did not go with them, nor did he tell them to storm the building. And the Trump camp is focused on language that doesn't fit the house manager's narrative, focusing on statements like, quote, I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. And the next big argument that the Trump camp makes is that the Senate simply doesn't have jurisdiction over a former public official, citing the constitutional text we referred to earlier. Former President Trump's lawyers spent most of day four laying out their defense as it was. And by the way, I'm not particularly impressed by Trump's legal defense team here. With respect to Bruce Castor, uh, he legitimately seemed to be confused at many different times. It seems like he winged everything. And often when it was clear he was not talking from his notes, he would go back to his notes. And sometimes the things that he had written out ahead of time were worse than the things he was just talking about off the cuff. You know, it's interesting because I don't want to steal the thunder from the other lawyers, but Nebraska, you're going to hear, is quite a judicial thinking place. With respect to David Schoen, he seemed to think that the louder he yelled, the more persuasive he was, and he was very wrong about that. And then there's Michael Vanderveen, who is a personal injury lawyer who absolutely looked and sounded like a personal injury lawyer who had absolutely no understanding of the grand stage that he was on. These depositions should be done in person, in my office, in Philadelphia. This was a B team of lawyers filling in for former President Trump after his first legal team quit en masse, and it absolutely showed. At many times, the Trump team argued that former President Trump was not afforded due process, and therefore the whole thing should just be thrown out. This argument I find particularly galling because on the one hand, they're saying that investigations should be done, depositions should be taken and at the exact same time. They're also arguing that the whole thing should be thrown out because too much time was taken, too much time has passed. And now Trump is no longer in office and thus there's no jurisdiction for this impeachment at all. And yes, lawyers argue in the alternative all the time, but that doesn't mean that that's a persuasive tactic to take. And here, as we've talked about many times, the requirements for a criminal conviction simply don't apply here. The beyond a reasonable doubt standard does not apply in impeachments. And there's a lot of confusion about the term incitement itself. Incitement means a lot of different things. It is number one, a crime under most jurisdictions. It's also an exception to the first amendment in terms of speech that is not protected by the first amendment. It is a political offense uh, as to something that the Senate might feel is unbecoming of the president himself. 
and thus warrants removal or uh, being barred from public office. And it's also being used as just a shorthand for everything that happened. And because you have these different definitions going across purposes, a lot of the different arguments are like ships passing in the night. And it's all bound up in this question of whether the president should be held to a higher standard than your average citizen or a lower one. And remember, the vast majority of legal weight says that the president doesn't have to be guilty of an actual crime to be impeached, removed, and barred from office. And playing off of that confusion, the Trump lawyers created a video montage of Democrats using the term fight in contexts that don't rise to the level of incitement. Of course, many people argued the counter that, of course, it depends on the context, that it also depends on the intent. None of these uh, Democratic members of Congress ever had the intention to actually incite violence, that uh, the violence was not incited, no riot ever came about of these words, and that the context was incredibly different. But the point is valid that different words can mean different things in different contexts, but it really feels like these arguments were a false equivalence and a lot of whataboutism. And apart from the due process arguments, the Trump lawyers argued extensively about hearsay. And this makes me want to pull out my own hair for several different reasons. First of all, as we've talked about many different times, the Senate can use whatever standard it wants. And generally it has almost always allowed hearsay as evidence in impeachment trials. But more to the point, almost all of the hearsay statements at issue here would be admissible in trial because they weren't being used for the truth of the matter asserted, which is necessary for hearsay, but rather they were being used for the state of mind of former President Trump and his intent, which is a non-hearsay purpose to the statements themselves. So yes, they were out of court statements, but not all out of court statements are inadmissible. And the vast majority of the things being discussed here would probably have been admissible. And putting apart the fact that almost all of the senators who are participating in this particular trial were firsthand witnesses. And the hearsay wasn't really necessary for them to make their decisions because they were a part and parcel to witnessing all of this stuff. But perhaps the biggest irony is that the defense extensively used hearsay themselves. The entire defense case, because President Trump wasn't willing to testify himself, relied on out-of-court statements. So if you're going to exclude a whole bunch of the prosecution's case on the basis they're out-of-court statements, then you have to disregard the entire defense case. Now, there was big news after the fourth day of the impeachment trial when Representative Herrera Butler, a Republican, came forward and relayed part of the conversation that she had with Representative Representative Kevin McCarthy of California. This conversation seemed to dispute basically everything the defense had said about uh, former President Trump's knowledge about what was going on at the time. In the middle of the insurrection, when House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy called the president to beg for help, President Trump responded, and I quote, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. Now, if this were a court case, it is possible to get double hearsay or hearsay within hearsay to be admissible. You just need an exception for both layers of the hearsay. And arguably that's met because uh, between Trump and McCarthy, that would go to President Trump's state of mind. And as between McCarthy and Herrera Butler, that could be a present sense impression or excited utterance based on the circumstances uh, that there would be an exception to the hearsay rule. And arguably that statement would be admissible in court. And that takes us to the third argument that the Trump lawyers make, which is that an impeachment of a private citizen is really a bill of attainder. Now, this is an argument that probably made a lot of first year law students extremely happy because uh, bills of attainder don't come up that often. But Trump argues that the impeachment trial by the Senate of a private citizen violates Article 1, Section 9 of the U.S. Constitution, which states that no bill of attainder shall be passed. 
What is a bill of attainder? Well, that is basically a prohibition on Congress from enacting any law that legislatively determines guilt and inflicts punishment upon an identifiable individual without provisions of the protections of a judicial trial. Now, according to Trump, this impeachment and every impeachment is a bill of attainder because it allows the legislature to make a finding of guilt. A bill of attainder is the kind of legislative act that only has effect when it's adopted by both houses of Congress and signed into law by the president. Impeachment and removal, by contrast, though, can be accomplished by Congress alone. And most importantly, it's written into the text of the Constitution. So if a bill of attainder were to nullify the impeachment clause, that would be a big problem. And uh, there's no interpretation of the Constitution where that can possibly be uh, correct. And this means that Trump is legally incorrect in saying that a conviction of the Senate counts as a bill of attainder. The Senate isn't voting on any such bill. It's putting former President Trump on trial for impeachment, which is part of the Constitution itself. The President, Joe Biden, doesn't have a role in impeachment. And there've been all kinds of bad faith arguments about saying that you can't deprive someone of life, liberty, or property without due process. But the due process is the impeachment trial itself. And on top of that, this is not a deprivation of the normal Fourth Amendment rights. It's written into the Constitution that you can uh, have an impeachment that has the punishment of preventing someone from being able to hold office again. It's written into the Constitution itself. But this distinction between a bill of attainder and impeachment goes back far into English common law. Under the law, English monarchs would have to sign off on any bills of attainder. And impeachment was added as a tool precisely because it did not need royal consent. It gave parliament the ability to constrain the executive power. And the American founders were not fond of bills of attainder because they effectively allowed the government to make a post hoc decision about punishing someone criminally as an individual private citizen. But they really liked impeachment because they feared a, a, a monarch coming to the American executive. This was the whole reason for the revolution to begin with, that they wanted to cast aside the monarchy. So this takes us to one of the main thrusts of the Trump lawyers, which is that the First Amendment prohibits impeachment for words. Trump argues that the impeachment invites senators to violate the First Amendment principle of freedom of speech. And Trump says that impeachment itself is always constrained by free speech. Quote, the Constitution must, at a minimum, serve as a limitation on the ability of Congress to impeach for high crimes and misdemeanors. Here, Trump is essentially saying that the government, i.e. the House of Representatives, is trampling on his free speech rights by impeaching him for things that he said and did. And the crux of this argument is that Congress cannot impeach a person for constitutional conduct. And if we tried to apply this principle consistently, then other articles of impeachment against other presidents would also have to be rejected. Bill Clinton arguably had a fourth and 14th amendment privacy right to consensual sexual conduct with another adult and a first amendment right to lie about it. But the problem is there's all kinds of legally and morally impermissible acts that are based solely in speech. Defamation is a solely speech-based act. For the most part, bribery tends to be a speech-based act when you're making a bargain with uh, an elected official uh, for their own pecuniary interest. That's a based in speech. And there's basically no argument that some of these things wouldn't give rise to impeachment. And the Trump lawyers try to blend legal and political arguments together. The Trump lawyers accuse the house managers of creating an impeachment process that yields to the quote, unbridled whims of house managers. But a bipartisan group of legislators in the house believe that Trump's conduct and words were impeachable. Trump argues that they were all motivated by Trump derangement syndrome, but this is really a legal argument. It's a political one. And it's one that of course he's free to make, but it doesn't seem to hold water on a, a legal basis. The house of course argues that it didn't impeach president Trump because he expressed an unpopular political opinion, but rather it impeached him because he was willfully inciting a violent insurrection against the government. 
They argued, quote, we live in a nation governed by the rule of law, not mob violence incited by presidents who cannot accept their own electoral defeat. And of course, President Trump argues that he did not commit a violation of law. Trump argues the same position in this impeachment that he did the first time around, that a president can only be impeached if he violates a criminal statute. The Trump lawyers argue that the only relevant inquiry is whether Trump's January 6th speech incited people to imminent lawless action. And to determine whether it did, we should not consider the broader environment in which the speech was actually made. We should only look narrowly at the actual text itself. And on the fifth day of the impeachment trial, the big drama came as a result of the Democrats winning a vote to be able to call witnesses at the trial, but then backing down, accepting a stipulation of the Herrera Butler statement, and then moving forward with closing arguments. Now, personally, I would have liked to have seen witnesses. I think that it would have been good for historical reasons to lay even more of a factual foundation for everything that went on and to be able to force some of the uh, testimony related to things that uh, former President Trump may or may not have been thinking and when he was thinking them. But at the same time, it's probably not the case that witnesses would have actually changed the result of this impeachment trial. And at the end of the day, 57 senators voted to convict former President Trump, which was not enough for the two thirds majority needed for conviction. And the number is a record. There were seven Republican senators who voted to convict Trump, and that is seven times greater than the previous number of senators who voted to convict a president of their own party, which uh, that number was set by Senator Mitt Romney just a year ago in President Trump's first impeachment trial. So the question is, what happens next? I suspect that there will probably be commissions, subpoenas, uh, investigations, and criminal prosecutions. Remember, the impeachment punishment is extremely narrow. It's simply removal from office uh, and being barred from running again. Theoretically, impeachment itself is dead. If under these circumstances, the president cannot be impeached, then doesn't seem like there is any realistic scenario where any president will ever be impeached, which in itself is, I think, a worrying trend. And even though Mitch McConnell voted to acquit President Trump, he still recognizes that Trump is liable for everything that he did in office and seems to be almost asking prosecutors to criminally prosecute former President Trump. They did this because they'd been fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth. And bad news for those that want to invoke the 14th Amendment to bar people who have uh, participated in sedition against the United States from holding office. The 57 Senate votes that were uh, secured to convict President Trump on impeachment are not enough votes for cloture. So given that the filibuster still exists, there's not going to be enough votes to actually bar him under the 14th Amendment, assuming that the votes stay the same. But there is some good news. Given that this was truly a bipartisan effort with both members of the House and seven Republican senators who voted for conviction, this is probably a green light for criminal prosecutions. Normally you would assume that state district attorneys or the US Attorney General would be extremely reluctant to engage in a criminal investigation of a former president. But given the overwhelming bipartisan support, it sort of signals to those law enforcement officers that you can proceed if there is indeed a, a true criminal violation by former President Trump. And there's also more good news in that the threat of impeachment probably restrained former President Trump in the last days of his presidency. So generally, I'm feeling pretty good about this whole affair. Yes, I wish they had called witnesses and made the record even more clear and frankly, rubbed the noses of the Republicans in their own filth for a little bit longer, but the record was already 1000% clear. This was not a failing by the House managers to make a case. The outcome was already a fait accompli. 
Mitch McConnell wouldn't allow trial while Trump was still in office and then hid behind his own political maneuvering as a reason for why he couldn't vote for conviction. And let's face it, sometimes even futile gestures are worth doing because it's the right thing to do. Seven Republicans voted for conviction, and that's absolutely no small feat in this hyper-partisan world. This is not a win for the Trump camp. They should not be high-fiving, thinking that they did a good job here. And I think history will be absolutely clear on this point. It will show that the acquittal was a miscarriage of justice, just like the acquittal of Andrew Johnson and the acquittal of Donald Trump the first time around. Oh, and one last thing. I know right now you're probably fumbling with your phone trying to find the next podcast to listen to, but you can't because this is an ad. But it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, you can go to watchnebula.com slash radio. You can get access to all of our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping to support us make even more amazing content. So before you go, check out watchnebula.com slash radio to support this channel and this podcast directly.